average. I've spent my life running from that word. I started my life as an average guy with average faults and average capabilities. But I soon learned that this world presents greater than average problems. It wasn't long before those problems pressured me to become someone else, to become Superman. I convinced myself I had to be bulletproof. I had to be bigger than any problem. I had to be superhuman. Frankly, I'm tired of being Superman. Maybe Clark wasn't so bad after all. It's time for reality to meet the real me. It's time to say goodbye to Superman. If you're here in 2010, you remember that our church went through a little bit of a difficult uh, season. Um, because my dad kind of hit a little bit of an emotional wall and kind of a, a crisis moment in his life. You've heard him talk about it several times uh, from this pulpit, but I've never spoken publicly about it. Uh, I certainly asked his permission before doing this, but I will tell you, it was a, it was a difficult time trying to sort of figure out what was happening with my dad because all of a sudden he wasn't really himself. Um, you know, growing up, uh, my dad for me was kind of a larger than life character, kind of a Superman type in that he really represented things that I wanted to be like. He represented things that I thought were, were good and, and, and symbolized in, internal strength. My dad was always kind of that rock that people counted on. He had good advice, he had good wisdom, and people cared about what he had to say. As a matter of fact, um, in his 30s, my dad was on the board of directors of a, of a college. He was the president of, of Christian Fellowship, the youngest president uh, of that, that, uh, that had ever been of that fellowship. So he, he, was, he was a person that a lot of people respected. Everybody wanted to know what his opinion was. He was extremely calm in crisis. I watched him handle a lot of situations that would have really been difficult for other people to handle, but he seemed to take it in stride. It just seemed to be part of, of his gifts package, you know. And so, and, and you should know that what you see here at church of my dad is pretty much what I saw growing up at home. Not a lot of pastors' uh, kids are able to say that, but the truth is what you see with my dad is pretty much what you get. I mean, he is flawed, he's human, but he tends to talk to you from here about his flaws. So you pretty much know what's there, you know? And so uh, I really considered my dad to be that point of stability. Anytime I had problems, challenges, you know, way before I ever came on staff here, anytime I had things that I was worried about or concerned, I'd pick up the phone, call him, say, what do you think, dad? But all of a sudden, my dad was not really that rock anymore. I, I remember when things really kind of imploded. And, and if this gives you any kind of an idea of the timeline of all this, I came to work at New Spring in May of 2010. So that's when I began my ministry here. Previously, for a little over three years before that, I'd served at the First Baptist Church of Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, and then I came on staff here. If this tells you anything, I came here in May. My dad sort of hit the wall in November of the same year, right? And so it was a time where a lot of us were sort of scrambling to figure out what kind of help do we need to get him? And then also, what do we do, you know, keeping the wheels rolling at New Spring in the meantime? Uh, our executive pastor, Billy Poor, handled so many crucial strategic decisions in that time that I cer certainly would have been over my head. And I had the responsibility of, of speaking during the time that my dad was gone. If you were here in 2010, I'm sorry. I did my best, right? <laughs> Uh, but, but seriously, um, that was an interesting time. I remember the day it all kind of went bad, and I was in a, a, a staff meeting with my dad. It was the day of the week where we had staff meetings, and he asked me if I would stay afterwards to talk with him briefly after the meeting, and he said he needed to ask me something. I said, okay. 
After the meeting, he, he asked me whatever it was he needed me to do, and I said, that's no problem. And we started just having one of those small talk conversations, just going back, talking about whatever. And all of a sudden, I watched my dad kind of mentally leave the room. Like, I was, I was talking, and then he talked, and then as he was talking, he just sort of drifted away mid-sentence and just became, like, not there. Like, and I began to just think, what in the world is happening? And in the next few hours that... We, I began to hear my dad say things and, 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 and things that sounded like anxiety talking, things that sounded like fear talking and concern and him being concerned about his effectiveness as a pastor and all these things were not, they were not consistent with who I knew him to be. They were not consistent with the dad that I knew. And so I didn't really understand what was going on. One thing I did know, I did know that when you push too hard, you can tend to reach a breaking point. And so I think a lot of us who were in my dad's close circle at that time, we really knew he had been pushing too hard. And so even though it was a season of great success for New Spring, things were going really well. Even though it was a, series, a, a time of success, I think we all knew he had pushed himself to the point where something had snapped inside. Now, you know the rest of the story, of course, which is that my dad got some great help. Uh, he had a period of, of, of recuperative rest. And when he came back, and those of you who have been here since 2010, I think can join me in attesting to the fact that since then, I think God has kicked my dad's ministry up a notch. I think, it has, I think God has only elevated his effectiveness since that's happened. But as soon as he got back, I thought my life was going to be really easy, you know, because I'm going to quit doing, filling the role uh, of speaker for a while, and, and I'll get back into my normal rhythm and routine here at New Spring. But it wasn't too long after he got back from his journey, I would say maybe six months or so, that I began to experience some, some real internal emotional issues on my own. And I didn't have the same journey that my dad did, but I will tell you one thing. It woke me up to the fact that in ministry, as well as probably in whatever field that you're in and whatever endeavor that you do, it is possible to push too hard. It is possible, possible to reach a point where something inside snaps. And so we've been talking about it. That's kind of what inspired this Superman series and specifically the character we're going to be talking about in a few moments. And we've come up with this principle that we've been using in these weeks, right? We've said that anytime you expect more from yourself than what you are able to accomplish, you're headed for a meltdown. You're headed for a crisis. And we've been talking about five different people in the Bible who had these sorts of meltdown moments. But I will tell you that there is nobody that I know of that we're going to be talking about who as closely mirrors what I watched happen with my dad than this passage here. And I hope it'll be helpful for you because if you're a very effective person there was going to come a moment where you're going to need what we're talking about today. So we're going to start off by just introducing you to this character, Elijah. You may be very familiar with him. This may be the first time you've heard of him. But Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Now, a prophet's job was simple. God would give the prophet a message, and the prophet was to take the message to, which if God said, take it to the ruler, he would take it to the king. If God said, take this message to the people, he would take it to the people. He was God's spokesperson. Now, you remember uh, the last series we do, did was a series on Jonah. Jonah was also a prophet, so it's the same job description, right? So God sent Elijah into kind of a tough time in Israel's life. I want to give you a little bit of history on uh, Israel, so I'll have you hang with me here for a little bit. I'm not a huge history buff myself, so I'll try to keep this in the Cliff's Notes sort of uh, style of doing this. But um, you know, we've been talking about a couple of the other kings of Israel here recently. We've talked about Saul and uh, King David, right? And in the days of King Saul and King David, Israel was united. It was just one uh, big kingdom altogether. But then after, you know, you have Saul, then you have King David, and then David's son Solomon. After Solomon, you have a civil war that happens in Israel, and the, the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You still with me? Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is going to be called Israel. Southern kingdom is going to be called Judah, right? And each of those kingdoms are going to have a procession of kings, right? Now, here's the deal. 
God is paying attention to each of these kings, and at the end of their reign, God gives them a sort of report card. The Bible will tell us either this king did good in the sight of the Lord, or this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now Judah, remember, that's the southern kingdom. Judah gets a mixed bag. Some of, some of Judah's kings are good, some of Judah's kings are bad, some of them it's hard to tell. In the northern kingdom, right, all of the kings are bad, every single one of them. And the, the, the situation that Elijah gets sent into, there's an especially bad king on the throne. And this is in 1 Kings 16, starting verse 29. Uh, Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So he's an exceptionally evil man. And as though it were not enough to follow in the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship of Baal. Even if you're not a huge Bible student, you know that we don't use the name Jezebel to talk about people that we just love and are very dear to, right? <laughs> Jezebel was a daughter of a king of another country. Ahab married her because it was politically expedient, it was financially a good thing for the, for the nation. I'm certain, certain maybe, maybe there was love that entered into it, but I, I wouldn't know. lady like Jezebel, you'd have to think twice about that. But, um, but he marries this gal. The country that Jezebel is from they worship a god named Baal. Now, Baal worship, and I want to be as genteel as I, as I possibly can in this room, but Baal worship uh, c consisted of very perverse sexual practices. Um, there was human sacrificing was, was kind of a, a key thing in the worship of Baal. Um, so it was a bad, bad deal. Now, Baal is known as the storm god, right? So you pray to Baal, uh, uh, or the people did at that time, they prayed to Baal to get rain for the crops so that they could sell the crops so that they would be financially uh, well off. So Baal was really a god of prosperity, but known as the storm god, right? Now, if you can imagine, I, I told you a little bit about what it's like to worship Baal. And God's people are going back and forth. Sometimes they're worshiping Baal. Sometimes they're worshiping the true God. They're going back and forth. And Elijah's job is really going to be to do two things. Number one is to confront these you know, crazy people on the throne, Ahab and Jezebel. right? Um, but secondly, to talk, to talk to the people of Israel and to say, you can't keep doing that. You can't, keep, you can't, can't worship Baal some of the time and worship God some of the time. It's not going to work that way. You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to choose who you're going to worship. This is mostly Elijah's job. So uh, I can't really go into all the history of Elijah's life because we would be here for much longer than the time that we've got. But I will tell you, the first thing that happens with Elijah is God tells Elijah, go to Ahab and tell Ahab it's not going to rain for three years. And I think this is God's benevolence to show that the storm God is not really causing the financial prosperity that Israel was experiencing at the time. See, that's the re I think that's one of the reasons why Baal worship was starting to take root. In this particular moment in time, Israel is being very financially well off just for, just for this window of time. And so so I think there are a lot of people who think, well, look how successful we've become since we've started worshiping Baal. And I think God is going to send a message to them by saying there's no rain for three years just so that they'll be really clear on the fact that Baal has not been creating their prosperity for them, right? So Elijah goes and tells Ahab this. And over a course of time, eventually the three years is over and God tells Elijah, I want you to go back and tell King Ahab that it's going to rain. But before it rains, y'all might as well all meet up and have this thing out. So Elijah calls um, the people to Mount Carmel. And on Mount Carmel, he also calls the prophets of Baal. Now, it's anybody's speculation on exactly how these prophets came to be, but I tend to think Jezebel's personality is such that she was probably jealous that God had prophets. And so if, you know, if the God of the Israelites had prophets, then, you know, by golly, she better have some prophets. If they get a pastor, we get a pastor, you know? So she's, she's got prophets of Baal, and, and Elijah calls for them to come and meet on Mount Carmel, right? 
So here's what happens. Elijah says, you can't, to the people, he says, you can't keep doing this. You can't keep worshiping this God and then worship the true God. You're going to have to make up your mind who's who. And I guess it might as well be settled right here and now. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to put together an altar. We're going to put a sacrifice on the altar. And you guys can try to pray to have your God send down fire from heaven and, uh, and burn up the sacrifice. And, uh, and then I get a chance to call, to call to my God and have my God send down fire from, on the sacrifice. And I think we could might as well just go ahead and agree that whichever God sends down fire from heaven is really God. Can we do that? And the people said, yeah, it makes sense to us. So the Baal guys win the toss and they go first, right? And they, they pray for a long time. They try everything they can to get Baal's attention. They're trying to call down fire from heaven, right? Nothing happens. It's about midday and Elijah starts having a little fun with them, you know? So, so Elijah says, well, you know, maybe your God went on vacation. Who knows? Everybody needs a break. Maybe you went to Disney World, you know? Or, or then he says, maybe your God's hard of hearing, right? We'll get him a bell tone. We'll get him, we'll, we'll get him all set. Or he says, you know, maybe, just maybe, you know, your God has stepped into the celestial bathroom. Could be, right? And he's having all kinds of fun with them. Eventually, you know, towards the evening time, he says, all right, this is ridiculous. You guys have had your chance, and it's my turn. So he kind of builds up the altar, and then he has them douse the sacrifice with water. Anybody ever tried to set fire to something that's been doused with water? He has them pour barrels of water on the sacrifice. Now, every once in a while, somebody says, now, Jonathan, where did they get all this water? Haven't they just had three years of drought? Well, yes, they had, but the Mount Carmel is right by the sea, right? And so you can't drink seawater. My hunch is they went down and they brought seawater up and doused the, the sacrifice uh, and here's what happened. Elijah went up, prayed a very simple prayer. Now think about it. These guys have been going all day long. He goes up and prays a very simple prayer. And the Bible says that the fire that God sent from heaven consumed the sacrifice, the water in the trench around the altar, and the stones of the altar itself. You want to talk about a, a monstrous show of the power of God. You want to talk about cooperation. You know, uh, corroboration. Elijah's been saying, this is the true God, and God certainly showed up and proved that to be the case. So the people of Israel say, all right, that must be the real God. We're really going we're, we're gonna to worship him. And then they kill all of Baal's prophets, right? So this is, for Elijah, a good day, right? This is what you hope for. You hope that people will see the truth. You hope that God will demonstrate himself. And you hope that at the end of the day, people will come to faith in Christ, right? This is, this is what you live for. This is Super Bowl Sunday. Good things are happening. But a lot of you in this room know what I know, which is that when good things are happening, sometimes that can be the very thing that pushes you over the edge, right? And so we find that at this moment, at this moment of success, at this moment of great things happening, something snaps inside of Elijah. Check this out. The Bible says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now, you should know Jezebel's actually running the kingdom, not Ahab, but that's another message for another day including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. Now, those were Jezebel's friends. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now, this is what we expect from Elijah right now. Do you think about how strong a character Elijah has been all this time? I mean, he has gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ahab. Ahab's the wickedest king Israel's ever had. And God tells him, I want you to go get in Ahab's face and tell him there's not going to be any rain for three years. And he does it. This guy does not flinch. He's the adult in the room. He's the guy who doesn't show fear. He's the rock. And the Bible says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. Now remember we said Judah is the southern kingdom. Most of Elijah's ministry is in the northern kingdom. So he goes out of where his ministry is. He goes into Judah, right? And he left his servant there. 
He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. You want to talk about a meltdown moment? I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already, already died. You want to talk about out of character? You want to talk about somebody making a 180-degree shift? What in the world is going on? I mean, this is a, this is a big deal. I want to give you a principle. This principle had a lot to do with getting this series off the ground and, and finding its way. It's really simple, okay? Anything capable of crashing needs to be able to control its speed and its direction. Anything capable of crashing, that would be you and me, right? Needs to be able to control its speed and direction. Let me ask you a question. When you leave this building today, would you drive your car home or to lunch, wherever you're going after this, would you drive it anywhere if you knew that you were either not going to be able to control the speed or not going to be able to control the direction? I doubt it. After all, those are kind of the pivotal parts of your car. I think just about everything else is an accessory, right? But see, a lot of times in life, we struggle to control our speed or our direction, like our speed. We have a pace. There is a pace that, that is right for us, a, an intensity of life that fits. Some of us, we have a pretty high intensity of life. They, somebody wants us to go on vacation and unplug, and we feel like our life is going 20 miles an hour while everybody is passing us on the freeway going 75 because we're like, there is nothing to do, you know? Vacation is tough for us. Why? Because our normal pace is pretty intense, right? Some of us, not so much. It's just, it's a, it's a range. But then, then there's the issue of direction, right? Where are you headed? What is your goal? Where are you going, right? Some of us have a direction problem. We don't have a speed problem. Some of us have a speed problem. We don't have a direction problem. Some of us have a little bit of both. Elijah was really good with directions. When God gave him something to do, he did it. He understood where he needed to go. His compass was pointed true north. Problem is he had a speed challenge. He did not know when to speed up and when to slow down. So I brought a little graph here with me. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm a graphic thinker, so two weeks in a row I've done this now to you. Um, but if you think of your, your life like a speedometer here, and, and so you have three categories here, right? One is futility. Now, futility, in, in that category, you're not doing very much. You're not accomplishing a whole lot. Now, you could be busy. I've seen a lot of people who lived kind of futile lives and were very busy, but there's not a whole lot happening and not a lot is getting accomplished, right? Uh, on the other side is exhaustion, right? Exhaustion is where you have pushed yourself so far that you have crossed the border between effectiveness to where you're totally spent, Right? In the middle is effectiveness, right? And all of us have our different comfort area within this zone. Now, I believe that God has not designed us for futility. God has not designed us for exhaustion, but rather God has designed us for effectiveness. Each of us will have a challenge to remain in the effective zone. Some of us are going to, our comfortable spot is here, and we're going to have to challenge ourselves not to slip into futility. But there are a lot of us where our our needle points right about here. We're right about on the line in between effectiveness and exhaustion. This is where Superman complexes live. And if you have one, here's what you need to know. If you live on the border, you will eventually cross over into exhaustion. It will happen. Just own it. Expect it. But here's what I want you to know. If you cross the line and you hover over into exhaustion, it will freak you out. And it will freak the people around you out. Because it won't look like you. It'll look like somebody else. Why? Well, let me ask you a question. What makes you effective? Right? What keeps you on the edge of the zone? If you're a very effective person, it's probably strategic planning. 
your ability to look at a set of situations and determine the best course of action. It's probably crisis management. When a problem comes up, it's how you keep your head cool and, and you tend to be the person in the room who knows the answer. Here's how we're gonna get out of this crisis, right? Tends to be uh, reasoning, coming up with uh, your view. You look at a bunch of data and you come up with how to view it. Flexibility is kind of your ability to listen to someone else's view or look at someone else's way of making sense of the situation and be able to adjust to it and accommodate that, right? More than anything, you're probably very good at directing the mental flow of traffic. A couple weeks ago, I was at a conference and one of the psychologists there talked to me about, he, he considers the thought stream in our brains to be kind of like a river where you've got all these thoughts just sort of flowing downstream. Some of them, and, and, and we know this, right? Some of them are good thoughts, some of them are bad thoughts, some of them are brain hiccups that we just go, wow, that was a weird thought that just went through my head, right? But, but these things go through, right? We recognize that, and there is a part of your brain that sort of looks at all those things and says, okay, that's a good thought, and that's a weird thought, and that's something I wanna concentrate, and that's something I wanna think about, and that's something that if I dwell on that, that's gonna make me crazy, and we, we pay a lot of attention to, okay, what am I gonna think about? And, and we order those things, we direct mental traffic. Now, everything I just described to you, that long laundry list of things I just talked about, those are things that the brain does that neuropsychologists talk about, call, they call them uh, executive functions, right? They're sort of top-down things that our brain does, right? Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the very first part of your brain functioning that goes down the tubes when you get really exhausted? We have the science to prove it is those executive functions. Those things that make you so successful, those are the things that plummet when you go across the line. So all of a sudden, the person that you're used to being, the things that you're used to making you effective, what keeps you in your comfort zone is gone. And as a result of that, and this is what I want you to get, please don't miss this. As a result of that, exhaustion feels like futility. It's nothing like that, but that is what it feels like. It feels like there's no point. It feels like failure. It feels like I'm not making a difference. And that's where Elijah is. That is why Elijah says, take my life, it's enough. Look at what he says, he said, I'm no better than my ancestors. That is the voice of a person who thinks that he's right here. That is the voice of a person who says, there's no point, I haven't made a difference in the world, I failed at my job. It's a risk of being effective, is slipping over into exhaustion, but if we know how to handle it, we can work through it. It's a problem in our country, by the way, I, I, just as a, a side point. I was going to let you know, I, in my research for this talk, I noticed that the American Institute of Stress in 2013 let us know that estimated costs in the United States due to burnout and other stress-related factors are over $300 billion, with a B, dollars annually. Costs related to stress and burnout are over $300 billion a year. It's a big deal. We are an exhausted nation. We push it really hard, sometimes too hard. We have a speed problem. I mean, check it out. This is what, this is what he says. I, I have had enough. And the, truthfully, to a certain extent, there's a little bit of truth to that. He pushed himself too far. So it starts with exhaustion, right? And then after exhaustion, it escalates to withdrawal. And if you've been around somebody who's really exhausted, you've witnessed this. They begin to retract. Instead of being the person who connects, they become the person who withdraws. Why? I'll tell you. I think it's because that person is so freaked out by the exhaustion 
that all the noise coming from other people trying to speak truth into their life, they just don't know how to accept it. They don't know how to interpret it. They don't even really know. It's very difficult for them to hear that, and so they start to retract. But there's two problems with that. If you're a person in this room, you're exhausted, and you feel yourself pulling away, I want you to know there's two problems with that. Number one is it removes you from your support system. You think about if those executive functions that make you so successful are kind of shutting down, what is the next best thing? It's being close to people whose executive functions are working well who can speak truth into your life, right? And so you think about that. That's one thing. But here's the other thing, and I think it's the bigger one. If Satan can get you alone, if he can get you off by yourself, Satan can get you to redefine success. And before long, it'll go from I feel like a failure to I am a failure. And we certainly see that with Elijah. So I want to read this passage to you. This is what happens. And you know, Elijah is upset. He's under this lonely tree, the Bible says, and he's praying and says, tell, tells God he wants to die. Then in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 5, it says, He lay down and slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, so he gets to the cave, and the Lord says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has a speech. We know he's got this kind of composed because he does it twice. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Go and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and first of all, a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. That's a pretty big storm. But the Lord was not in that wind. After the wind, secondly, is an earthquake. The Bible says the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And the voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Here's a guy who's got a lot of struggles. I mean, Jezebel's trying to kill all of God's prophets. He's now gotten the message from Jezebel. Now he, he's number one on her hit list. Even though God's doing a lot of great things, his life is not an easy one. And when you go from exhaustion into withdrawal, this, this is what you need to know. Once you go from exhaustion to withdrawal, and, God, and, and, and Satan gets you to redefine success, it's only a short journey from there to resignation. It's only a short journey from there to I quit. Because that's what Elijah was saying. I resign. I'm no better than my ancestors. I failed. What's the point? I'm ready to quit. I'm ready to be done. That passage that I just read to you, I heard a lot of commentators' comments on that passage as I was preparing for this talk. And Oh, they said, well, Elijah right here, when Elijah talks about I've been zealous for you and They've torn down all your altars, and I'm the only one left. They're coming to kill me. So when Elijah says all that, he's angry at God. Oh, he's angry. You know, he's, he's giving God a piece of his mind. And then, then they have these elaborate 
ideas of what, the, what does the windstorm mean and the earthquake and the, the fire. And, you know, maybe each of those represents something. Or maybe God's, maybe God's just trying to teach him something about how he displays himself. And I mean, really elaborate thoughts. And I think those guys are much smarter than me. I want to give you a simple person's interpretation of what I think happened. I think that Elijah thought, well, let me put it this way. What did Elijah just do? He just prayed for God to send fire down on a sacrifice. And what happened? God sets fire to the sacrifice. Now, he asks God to kill him. What do you think he thinks God's going to do? I think when he laid down and went to sleep under that broom tree, I really think he didn't think he was going to wake up. I think he thought God was going to go ahead and take him out. Because after all, that's what he prayed and asked God to do. But then he wakes up and there's an angel there. An angel says, I want you to eat something. And the angel gives him food and, and water. And then Elijah goes back to sleep and the angel wakes him up again and tells him to eat some more food and drink some more water. One thing is very apparent at this point. Starvation is not God's tactic to take him out if that's, if that's what God wants to do. So now God gets him to Mount Sinai, right? And, and Elijah goes to Mount Sinai and, and, and God says, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives him this really great speech. And the speech is, I'm never going to be good enough, right? How many of us have prayed that prayer to God at some point? I'm never going to be a good enough spouse. I'm never going to be a good enough parent. I'm never going to be a good enough uh, son. I'm never going to be a good enough pastor. And when we, and we tell God those things, and it's like, go ahead and take me off the job because I'm not doing good enough. And, 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 and so then God sends, he says, I want you to go stand at the front of the mountain. So Elijah goes and stands at the front of the mountain. Now, here's what I think. I don't think Elijah is mad at God. I think Elijah is mad at himself. Just like those of you who are in management, you have somebody who's a very effective employee who makes a little mistake, and because they're so effective, because they're so good at what they do, they view that little mistake as the biggest thing in the world, and they come in your office and they tell you that they have to quit because this whole thing is just it makes them feel terrible and they feel so bad about it, and they're not mad at you. They're mad at them, and you want to ask them, why are you even here? Why are we even having this conversation, right? And that's what God is trying to do. God is saying, why are we even having this conversation? But Elijah persists with this. And so he says, all right, go stand on the front of the, front of the mountain, right? Here's what I think. Could be wrong. Here's what I think. I think that because Elijah still thinks, well, I prayed and asked God to take me out. I think this is when Elijah grimaces. How's he going to do it? He told me to go stand in front of the, stand in front of the mountain. I think this is where he thinks he, he gets what's coming to him. So he goes in front of the mountain, he, you know, he's grimacing, and here comes this big windstorm, blows the rocks around. Well, this is how God's going to take me out. He's going to take me out in a windstorm. But the Bible says God was not in the windstorm. Okay, well, now there's an earthquake. Oh, this is how God's going to do it. He's going to open up the, the ground. I'm going to fall in between it, and it's going to smush me like a bug. He's grimacing. It's going to happen now. And then God was not in the earthquake. So then comes a fire. This is what God's going to do. God's going to incinerate me, right? God wasn't in the fire. And God comes back again as a gentle whisper with the same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, I think God wanted Elijah to know if, if he really wanted to take him out, he could have done it any one of a number of ways, and it wouldn't have been difficult. And yet God's saying, I'm, I'm, I wasn't in any of those things. I'm not here to take you out. I'm here to ask you a question. Why are you off the job? See, that's the thing. God's nature, his very nature is to assign us to a task. The Bible says he gifts us with talents and abilities, and then he puts us on a task. Why? Because the God of this universe is at work doing things in this world, and because he is a relational God, he takes bits and pieces of what it is that he's trying to do in the world, and he assigns them to various ones of us so that we can be a flesh and blood extension of his plan in this universe, and we are at our best when we're on the job. But see, not only does God know we're at our best when we're on the job, Satan knows 
that we're at our best when we're on the job. So Satan knows that there is a group of people that he can never get in the futility category, no matter how hard he tries, he knows he's never gonna get you there. So it is the second best thing for him to push you past the line of your effectiveness into exhaustion so that you feel like you're being futile. If you think about it, Elijah's moment of exhaustion was God's opportunity to remind him you know what, your job is important. What you're doing is important, and I need you back to work. So what is God's plan for exhaustion? What is God's diagnosis? Because certainly during the, during the time that my dad was gone um, getting help, I saw a lot of different people trying to help him with a lot of different strategies. Some, some worked, some didn't. And so I want to look at the Bible and say, what did God do to help Elijah out? This obviously exhausted man, how did God help him in those days? So in order to do that, we're looking at 1 Kings 19, verses 15 and 16. The Lord told him, go back the way you came. Well, you want to talk about a profound statement. I wish we we could probably spend an entire message just on the phrase, go back the way you came. And travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, important name, son of Shaphat from the town of Abel-Meholah to replace you as my prophet. Now, if you're not an Old Testament scholar, a lot of those names probably don't make a whole lot of sense to you. But the one thing I think you can probably surmise along with me is that God has just sent him back to work. So what is God's plan? I've got just a few minutes to go over this. How does God help us recover when we're exhausted? Here's the first one. Rest. Boy, that's brilliant, isn't it? That's what you came here this morning to hear, right? So when you're exhausted, you need rest. But you know what's funny? As simple as that is, we forget it so often, right? God built us with multiple parts. We are both physical, spiritual, and emotional. And one of the things that falls off the train fastest when we are exhausted is our ability or our at least realization that we need to regulate our physical needs, right? I work with a lot of distressed marital couples. Not, not every couple that I work with is distressed, but a lot of them are. And one of the questions that I tend to ask is, are you taking care of yourself? Are you eating regularly? Are you getting good sleep, right? And generally speaking, the answer is no. Why? Because when we get distressed, we tend to quit taking care of ourselves, right? Notice that before God ever even takes Elijah to the mountain, before they ever have this big conversation, right, the first thing God does is see to it that Elijah has adequate rest and food and water, right? Now, there's symbolism there, right? Because basically, God is teaching us that you do have some basic needs, and those things have to get met first. And here's the thing. Rest is sort of a semi-automatic process of the body, yes? I mean, it's just kind of like breathing. Breathing is good, yes? thought I would just toss a simple question out there. Breathing is good, yes? Okay, yeah, good. So what happens if you decide, if your brain says, if you come up with the idea, uh, I think I'm just going to stop breathing, and you hold your breath for a long period of time. Anybody want to tell me what happens when that happens? You pass out, right? What happens when you pass out? You start breathing again, right? Because your body's pretty smart, and it knows that if you keep up with that, something bad's going to happen, right? So it will cause you to start, it's just like resting, right? How many of us, we we wanted to stay up, study for that final in college. We wanted to make sure we got a good grade. So we, you know, we're we're burning the midnight oil. You make it to about four o'clock in the morning. And the next thing you know, it's 930. You've slept through your final, right? Why? Because your body said it's time to rest. And if you won't do it, I'm going to do it for you, right? We have to be proactive. And by the way, and I I don't really have time to to mention this, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is a cycle, 
right? Because what happens is we don't take care of our physical needs because we're stressed, right? And then our physical needs start to catch up with us and we start to notice the toll that those physical needs are taking on our body and as a result, we don't rest some more, right? So if people say, well, I don't understand, you know, uh, I, I was talking to a pastor friend who was like, you know, I'm just so lethargic and I just feel like I'm not productive and I feel like constantly I'm, you know, I just feel tired all the time. I said, well, how many hours of sleep are you getting a night? He said, right about four, right? And I said, well, when was the last time you just took a day off to unplug? Because this is a pastor of a smaller church, and he says, I don't get a chance to take a day off. Well, let me tell you, the reason that he's feeling how he's feeling, of course, there could be a legitimate medical cause, but I'm going to go ahead and just throw out there that it might be that he's not taking care of himself, and the fact that he's not taking care of himself is making him stress out more, which is making him not take care of himself some more, right? We've got to rest. We've got to take care of our bodies, right? The Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, moving on. Second thing is relationship. Right. The first thing God does with Elijah is, is make sure that he gets rest. Second thing, though, is he establishes some relationships. In that passage that I just talked about, there, is some, there, there are some things that God says that are really jobs. Go do this and go see to this and make sure this happens. But then you notice that he says he wants him to go and connect with a guy named Elisha. Now, if you know 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you know that Elisha is going to be Elijah's successor. Elisha is going to take over where Elijah leaves off, right? But here's the cool thing. In the overlap period where Elijah and Elisha are working together and Elisha's really learning from Elijah, it's very obvious that there is friendship there, there is mutual respect, and both of them benefited from each other's presence. That is what a productive relationship looks like, and productive relationships are restorative in moments of exhaustion. My dad's talked to you guys about the fact that during his season of difficulty, he made connection, a connection with another pastor, and the two of them have been best buddies ever since. And that relationship has been hugely restorative for him because God built us for a relationship, right? God, that, that is part of how God meets those emotional needs. Okay, so we talked about rest, relationship, and then here's the last one, and it seems super simple, but I'm gonna bring it up anyway. The last one is return to work. I said God puts us on task, he gives us a job, and when we are at work, we are at our best, and God wants to get us back on the task, whether that task is, uh, my job is to be a parent, you know, and, and this is, you can have a job that's even separate from your occupation, because I have a job as a pastor, but I also have a job as a parent, I also have a job as a, as, as a husband, and God wants me on the job, I am at my best on the job. So the third thing is to return to work, but notice that it comes third. First is rest, second is relationships, third is return to work. Now I have one minute to cover this, and then we'll be done. Why is God so intent on getting Elijah back on the job? And if you're in a period of exhaustion in your life, if that's where you are, why is God so intent on getting you back to your zone of effectiveness? Well, for Elijah, it was because I believe that God could see what Elijah could not yet. God knew what Elijah's future looked like, right? God knows that, first of all, as soon as, as, soon as they get done with this whole deal, one of the very first jobs he's going to give Elijah is to go tell Ahab and Jezebel that their days on the earth are numbered, right? That's a pretty cool job. I think that'd be neat to do, right? Go tell them you're not going to be around here long, right? Um, but then here's the second thing. Think of the irony of this. I mean, this is dripping with irony. Here you have Elijah who's telling God, you might as well just let me die. And yet we know from the scriptures that Elijah is one of two people in all of the Bible that did not die because God came and got him and personally escorted him to heaven. How's that for irony? Then you think about this. God knows that hundreds of years later, Jesus is going to be standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses, and guess who? Elijah. And the disciples are going to see them conversing with one another. See, God knew what Elijah's potential was, and God knew he was not finished yet with him being on the job. That's why God didn't shut out his lights when he could have. It was because there was more work to do. 
If you're still here, you still have a purpose. If you're still here, God still has work for you to do. God still has a job for you to do. And you will be at your best on the job. It'll only work if it starts with taking care of yourself in the, in the environment of productive relationships. And then when you have that set up, you return to work and you accomplish the task that God has called you to. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us enough to put us on task. You care enough about us to restore us in moments of exhaustion. You help us know that we are not futile, but that you have given us something to do that makes a difference in this world. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I'm only gonna keep you for a couple more minutes. Quickly, you know, you know here at New Spring, we always give you an opportunity to reach out to God. If this is a time when you've never made a connection with God and you wanna do that, I'm gonna give you that opportunity in just a minute. But before I do that, I wanna ask this question. I, I've been talking to you about exhaustion this whole time. I would like to pray a special prayer for you if you're in this room right now and you're going through a season of exhaustion. So if that's you, would you lift your hand? Nobody's looking. If you're going through a season of exhaustion, would you just lift your hand? I'm seeing hands coming up all over this room. I would like to pray specifically for you. Father, for every hand raised, for every individual who's saying, I am exhausted, I am struggling, I'm going through a weak moment. I pray that you would bolster them up with your strength, that you would help them understand that they are not living in a season of futility, but rather, Father, that you want to help escort them back to a season of effectiveness. I, help, I pray that you would give them wisdom, peace, grace, understanding, knowledge, and the ability to know that this season will pass and that they will get back to that zone of effectiveness that you've designed for them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you would say, Jonathan, this is my morning. I want to connect with God for the very first time. I want to have a relationship with God. How would I do that? I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer that simply reaches out to God and just says, I want to accept your free gift. You don't need to say this out loud because the only person that matters that hears it is God. You can just say this silently in your head and it'll be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a second. If you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. I'd like to get you a packet of materials we put together. You can take that Talk To Us card you received when you walked in. Check the box that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services, and they'll get that packet to you before you leave, okay? One more week of Say Goodbye to Superman, then we start a brand new series. There's a place that I lose myself with.